This is Luann Brossman, president and founder of Government Marketing University. To support next generation government marketers, we continue to expand our offerings to include more training, networking events, and professional development programs. Go to gmarku.com, that's gmarku.com, and subscribe to our e-newsletter and see a calendar of all of our upcoming GMarku activities. Government Marketing University, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. This paid commercial may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to Market Chat Live, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing, brought to you by Government Marketing University. Market Chat brings communications and conversations from industry and government executives that aim to empower our listeners with greater insights and knowledge on how to successfully market to the U.S. federal government. I am Luann Brossman. I am the founder and president of Government Marketing University, and my co-host today is Steve Watkins. Steve is our content Chief Content Officer of Government Marketing University and the former editor of the Federal Times. How are you doing today, Steve? Doing good. So back in September of 2016, Government Marketing University held our first annual GAIN conference. GAIN stands for Grow, Accelerate, Innovate, and Network. And we had over 200 government marketers there. It was really a tremendous event. And during that conference on day two, we had an incredible team of four public affairs officers that came in and talked about how the heck do you get a case study done through government? How do I get a quote? Um, how does endorsements really work? And even to this day, even this week in our office, somebody was mentioning what a great panel it was. So I am so excited, Steve, that today we have these four public affairs officers back with us at Market Chat. I mean, how cool is that? Awesome. So at this point, I'm going to hand the microphone over to Steve and he'll do our introduction of our esteemed panel. Great. Well, thank you, Luann. So Luann, you're, you're a longtime government marketer and you've uh, probably done more press releases and case studies. Yes, and I have put on more government events than you probably care to count. Well, today we're going to try to crack the code on how to do these things uh, more smartly by understanding a little better the rules of the road on how to discuss and engage federal customers in your marketing projects. So today we have, uh, as Luann said, this all-star panel uh, with us. We have three public affairs officers and one member of a general counsel's office, uh, who specializes in the use of trademarks and logos. Uh, and then later in the show, at the end of the show, we're going to have a, um, a segment with Elizabeth Shea of SpeakerBox, uh, who's going to tell us from the marketing perspective um, how she has uh, engaged uh, federal agencies and has done some of, the, um, some of these types of... Um, press releases and events and so forth. All the so. cool stuff we're going to learn from our public affairs officers. Elizabeth will share with us how, in practicality, That's right. our marketing audience can do that. Yep. So let's get started. So we're going to introduce our, our panel, and uh, I'm very pleased to um, introduce Aaron Beekel-Wazorek. And Aaron is the Chief of Congressional Affairs and Strategic Communications at the U.S. Army's Program Executive Office for uh, Enterprise Information Systems, and a lot of our listeners might know that as P-E-O-E-I-S. Uh, we also have Cindy Yor, who's the Chief of Strategic Communications at uh, the Defense Information Systems Agency, or DISA. Uh, we have Chris O'Neill. Uh, Chris is the uh, Chief of Public Affairs for the National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, and also the President-Elect of the National Association of Government Communicators, NAGC. And we also have Nadine Santiago, who's the Trademark and Licensing Program Manager at the U.S. Navy's Office of General Counsel. So welcome, all of you, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. So let's, uh, let's just jump right into our questions. So the, uh, as, we, as we learned at our, our GAIN panel that uh, Luann referred to, um, the, the, the guiding principle behind uh, pretty much everything we're going to talk about is the notion that federal agencies cannot endorse or appear to endorse uh, any product or company. So uh, let's, uh, or, or have an implied endorsement, uh, and I think that's the technical term. So 
I'd like to kind of start with that and kind of ask everybody on the panel, and we'll start, Aaron, with you. Um, tell us what implied endorsement means to you and how much interpretation um, do you see generally from one agency to another and kind of how that's, um, how that's uh, interpreted? Thanks, Steve and Luann. Thanks so much for having us. This is a really important panel, and I'm very happy to be here. Um, from where I sit in an Army acquisition organization, endorsement is a really big deal. We spend a lot of time. Um, our number one priority is readiness. So we spend a lot of time working through um, acquisitions that support readiness. So in terms of endorsement, we're very careful about whether um, if, if it is if it is implied, if it is overt, um, we won't do it because we don't want to jeopardize those procurements, um, which actually ends up jeopardizing, you know, could jeopardize Army readiness. So to us, implied endorsement, you know, um, is anything that looks like we are, as PEOEIS, are um, advocating on, on behalf of one organization or one product or one service. Um, so we're very careful about that, and that's something that I work very closely with my general counsel on as well. Chris, what, what, how, how do you look at implied endorsement? Sure. So I think you hit on something about variation between agencies. So, yeah, if they understand that, by and large, it's really a general counsel decision more than a public affairs decision. And the guidance is handed from general counsel to public affairs. Uh, different attorneys have um, more stringent or less stringent interpretations of those regulations and how they want to apply them to their agency. Um, I will tell you that uh, at my current organization at NTSB, um, implied endorsement goes beyond the idea of, uh, is there an implied endorsement of a product, service, or company, or thing? It goes to uh, the agency's reputation as an independent accident investigation organization. And so any relationship that we would have with a, a commercial enterprise that might give the appearance that our independence have been compromised will wind up not making muster. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so... Independent agencies actually have kind of a another dimension of that uh, of that. Cindy, how about at DISA? How how do you look at that? Well, first of all, let me uh, be clear that the reason that we avoid either specified or implied endorsement is because of the joint ethics regulation. It's a prohibition in the joint ethics regulation, and corollary to that, um, there's also a requirement in the joint ethics regulation to avoid preferential treatment. So between those two items, the ban on implied or specified endorsement and the preferential treatment ban, we have to be very cautious not to allow um, any DOD employee to um, use their title, their position, their organization name, or any uh, fact that makes it appear that our organization or our federal entity endorses that product. Yeah, see. Uh, Nadine, um, so you you're a little different from the rest of the panel. You're first of all you you served for many years in a in a public affairs office uh, capacity, but now you're actually working for a general counsel's office for the U.S. Navy, um, and you're primarily uh, overseeing trademark and logo um, uh, use. So, from your perspective, how does implied endorsement uh, uh, pan out? I would have to say that I it, it would all work the same way for um, the military, as my panelists here mentioned. Um, we go by the joint federal ethics regulations, and if we see something in either a website or a press release or a product that would give the appearance of an endorsement or just make the general public believe that we are somehow associated or have approved this in any way, um, we're very careful. So then we go ahead and, and engage either our intellectual property attorney or consult with our ethics attorney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. So one of the things that, that marketers are um, probably calling your offices uh, most in need of is help with a press release. Um, it could be a press release about a contract award. It could be a press release uh, uh, about... Uh, what about about how their their agency missions are being met and yep let's talk about how that happens what how the heck do you get a press release that's the bottom line question that we want answered yep so um 
So, Aaron, let's let's start with you at PEOEIS. What what kind of requests do you get, and how do you typically kind of review those? Sure. Primarily, the requests that we get are for contract awards. And so, you know, the Army's policy is to really make available to the public the maximum amount of information about the contract award um, that we can. You know, there's exceptions about um, proprietary information, classified information, um, things that are subject to, you know, the Arms Control Act and things like that. Similarly, I mean, a lot of our contract awards have clauses written into them requiring that if um, vendors are going to write a press release, that they do send them through the public affairs office um, and, you know, legal review as well. And so we take a look at those and we're very happy to. We get those a lot and, and we are happy to look at those. We are happy to approve them. What we will look for in them, it goes back to endorsement. So, um, you know, we we don't really provide quotes from our PMs endorsing the company, um, things like that. But we are so happy when press releases go out about um, the contract and the effort and and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, w- what's the kind of thing that you might remove uh, from a press release that might go to your office for approval? Sure. Probably, you know, a quote saying uh, from my PM, this is the greatest <laughs> company I have ever worked with in my entire life. You know, kind of the, those those direct quotes. Um, we're happy to see things like the contract, uh, you know, period of performance, the effort, what it's going to do, um, those kinds of things. So the facts are great. As long as it's a straight recital of the facts of the award. Chris, how about from your end? Yeah, you know, I think there's a, a, a very bright line between um, stating what benefits are derived from a contract and then editorial content espousing the benefits of, the, of that contract. There's there's a bright line there. One is the way to stay on the right side of that bright line is stick to the facts. What, what was the amount of the contract award? What capabilities does it provide? Um, what are the benefits of it? It's not the it's not the PAO's job to uh, obviously not endorse a product, but it's not their job to promote it either. It's to factually talk about what that agency has done, what financial obligations have they committed to, and what benefits has the agency received as a result of it. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, how do you get that news release done? And, and as we said, uh, coming through the PAO, coming through the public affairs shop. That should be your one-stop shop for all the requests, whether it's to clear a news release or can I get a quote or how do we talk about this. And the other thing I would say, too, is depending on where you're at in government, there are some caveats on who's going to release the information about contract awards. Uh, When I was with DHS, they had in their guidance any contract award over a million dollars. The department had the, the first right of refusal whether they wanted to make that announcement or give it to the component agency. So there's usually a little up and down. Uh, in conversation before you get to execute. Chris, that's an interesting tidbit. So where would a government marketer uh, or a PR industry person go to find out those agency differences? So uh, part of that is knowing the public affairs shop for the company that you're engaged in doing business with. Just as you establish a business relationship with their contracting office, the people you had to get to to execute that, you should establish that relationship with that public affairs office. And if you have that relationship, they're going to be able to tell you right off the bat, hey, I'm not going to be the agency who's going to be able to put out the announcement on this. It's got to go up to the department level. Here's the person you need to chat with. And they'll, they'll walk you through that process. Yeah. And Chris, you had mentioned before about uh, obtaining a quote. Aaron, you mentioned at PEOEIS, probably you wouldn't have quotes in a press release Cindy, Chris, Nadine, are there any situations where a quote from an agency official might be appropriate for a press release? I can't think of a time when it would be appropriate simply because of that restriction on implied or uh, specified specified endorsement. It's really um, too close to an endorsement to do that. However, if a representative of the government um, said something in a public forum, like an immediate interview, um, I, I believe it could be associated. It should not be in the press release, and it's still probably something that we would take out of the press release, um, but they might use it in another way, um, you know, uh, 
perhaps in a social media post or something like that. If they were at an event and they they heard a person speaking and they said this, that the company potentially could repost it. Um, I but I still think there'd be a problem with endorsement depending how, on how it was uh, utilized. Yeah, actually, Cindy, you make a great point that kind of segues into my next question, which is there's an awful lot of uh, quotes that are out there in the public domain, either at you know public events or conferences or that have been made into the media and media reports. Um, generally, what are the rules for how companies might uh, repurpose those quotes, uh, either in a blog or, you know, perhaps even a thought leadership piece that's not strictly marketing, uh, or even in a press release. So, uh, how, how might that be handled? And you know what, Steve, that's a great question. And we're going to go to break and we're going to have that answered when we come back. So you are listening to market chat live, the hot topics, exciting guests and innovative ideas on government marketing. Market Chat Live, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. Brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. This is Luann Brossman, president and founder of Government Marketing University. To support next generation government marketers, we continue to expand our offerings to include more training, networking events, and professional development programs. Go to gmarku.com. That's gmarku.com and subscribe to our e-newsletter and see a calendar of all of our upcoming GMarkU activities. Government Marketing University, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. Welcome back to Market Chat by Government Marketing University on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. This is Luann Brossman, and today we are hearing from federal public affairs experts on their best practices for promoting a healthier, more robust dialogue between government and industry. My co-host today, Steve Watkins, will reintroduce our panel. Thank you, Luann. So uh, we have with us today Aaron Beekle-Wizorek from the PEOEIS of the Army. We have Cindy Yor from DISA. We have Chris O'Neill from NAGC, the National Association of Government Communicators. And we have Nadine Santiago from the U.S. Navy General Counsel's Office. So before the break, we were talking about quotes from public officials that are in the public domain. Uh, for instance, they've been reported in media reports or stated at <clears throat> uh, public uh, events such as conferences and so forth. So, um, Chris, let's start with you. Generally, what what are how do you view what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate in terms of how those public domain quotes can be used? Sure. So I think the first thing you have to really establish is, was it a public domain quote? Because I can't tell you how many times we send a principal to an event that's supposed to be closed media where it's supposed to be an open sharing of ideas. And the next thing we know, we're finding a quote in some news outlet or it's being run someplace else. And that kind of presents an issue. It's not that he didn't say it, but what context was it offered in? And so that leads to the next question then is what's the context in which that quote's going to be used? Certainly, if you go to uh, a conference, a public event, and you talk about the future of IT in your organization, you send your CIO someplace and they're going to talk about the world of possibilities and what is their focus for the next 5, 10, 15 years. That's public information at that point and certainly can be used as such and attributed correctly. But then the real question is the rub is how is it used and what context is it used? It's one thing to say uh, the CIO said this at a conference and then use it as a means to say, and we are the solution to that problem. It's another thing to take that and then say, well, what does it mean for our organization? Or our industry? Um, yeah, Erin. So for acquisition, getting our message out is really critical. It helps uh, our industry partners know what our future looks like and where to um, allocate resources and things like that to have the technology that we need ready when we need it. So we work really hard to get our our principals out there talking about what the future looks like. And so similar to what Chris said, you know, if we have, if there's a thought leadership piece, say a CEO um, talks about, I was at a conference, I heard PEOEIS say, this is the future, this is what I think it means for us. Totally different context than, you know, kind of a splash quote on the front page of your website that kind of makes it look like, you know, we exactly what, what we were talking about. We 
um, you know, we heard that this is the future and we are obviously we're the people to fix it. Um, so that's kind of it's all about context. Right. Cindy. And I think that really the balance between both of the excellent points that Chris and Aaron made is that if you're talking about a topic, so you're you're talking about a technology in our case, um, such as software defined networks, then our leaders will talk about the topic, but they're not going to talk about the company that's associated with that. And again, that's due to the restrictions of the joint ethics regulation and also because of the FAR. And, the, and so it's incumbent upon marketing professionals to understand both the JER and the FAR so that they can work within those restrictions. Right. So what I hear is it's basically great to, have, to, to repurpose these public domain quotes if you're furthering the discussion on capabilities and technologies, future directions of agencies, but if it's used to promote a company, that's not okay. I got a really uh, specific example I dealt with the other day at NTSB. So I saw a, a marketing quote unquote news release. It was paid content on a website, on a news site. And as I'm reading through it, it says that the NTSB had said that uh, aviation was the safest mode of transportation of all and hot air ballooning was in fact the safest of all modes of transportation. And the whole thing is, is basically an ad for a, a hot air balloon outfit in Arizona. Uh, I'll save the names to protect the innocent, but I, I called them up and I said, I'm really interested on your source material for this statement because I'm quite certain that we've never said hot air ballooning was the safest form of transportation. And the NTSB goes out of its way to never compare modes of transportation. So enlighten me where you got this from. Well, you have these statistics that show rates of accidents and yeah, but the statistics don't make that conclusion, do they? No. And we never said that, did we? No. So we're going to fix that. Yes. Yes. So, you, you, you know, it's one thing to take something off of a web page that talks about um, data, uh, talks about uh, an agency's position, apply your own interpretation to it and then sound it back out as the agency had said it. And that's going to get you sideways pretty quick. Sure, sure. Let's uh, let's jump into logos and trademarks. Um, so, Nadine, I'll, I'll, I'll address this to you. Uh, you're the expert from uh, the general counsel's office at Navy. Um, so. I see this so often. Uh, companies will often have the uh, the seal of an agency on their website that uh, might indicate they have an award contract award with that agency uh, or some sort of relationship. Um, so, Nadine, what what generally are the rules as they apply to use of logos to to use of seals and and also maybe you can also uh, help us define a little bit those terms of logos, trademarks, and seals. Sure. Thanks, Steve. Absolutely. Um, I want to take a moment right now and for everybody listening to let them know that there's actually a guide that the Department of Defense put on their website that deals about military logos. And if they can go ahead and Google something as use of Department of Defense seals, logos, insignia and service medals, it will discuss what non-federal entities can and cannot do with the logos. A, a misconception is that the military logos, marks, and indicators are in the public domain because you can pretty much Google them and right-click and obtain it. Um, that's not the case. Um, when can an, an agency use the Department of the Navy's logo um, for marketing purposes? They cannot because it would give the appearance of that implied endorsement that we discussed in the beginning of the segment. Um, however, in that web page, if they do have some type of contract or um, do some type of work with the agency, they can factually state that um, we do have a contract with the Navy for X because that is factual information. But when it comes to the agency logo, that is not the case. They cannot. Um, when can it be used? Well, we license the logo for commercial use. So when you see or you buy a ball cap or you buy something that has the words Navy or any other type that has been licensed through our office um, and we have some parameters already, so they've come to us for permission. But that's pretty much when how it stands. Right. And, uh, and and I assume the same holds true for seals of, of agencies. So 
for for the for the Department of the Navy, and I work closely with our counterparts in the Army, in the Air Force, um, the Coast Guard, and the Marines. The agency seals are reserved for official use only, and they are for that agency. Um, they cannot be used outside. So, if in any way it says Department of the Navy, because that logo has it, that is for um, the Department of the Navy's use only. Okay, let's jump into um, a topic that I know is near and dear to a lot of our listeners' hearts, and that has to do with case studies, because case studies are really the uh, the gold standard uh, in terms of marketing for a lot of companies that basically want to demonstrate their expertise and, <clears throat> excuse me, their their um, uh, capabilities in the federal marketplace. So. Uh, Chris, let me let me start with you on that. Uh, so, so case studies um, generally, how how do you kind of weigh the decisions around requests that you get for uh, assistance, whether it's interviewing a federal official at at the agency or just getting approval to do a case study? You know, I, I gotta tell you, I haven't dealt with that request all that much in my time in a public affairs office. Um, it hasn't come up all that much in my line of work. You know I really this think is the man. I Aaron. bet you why is because so many marketers think it's impossible. So <laughs> let's figure out how it's possible during this show today. Well, I think uh, we're hitting on that that note here, and I'm certainly going to defer to the folks who do it regularly. But I think the first off is coming to that public affairs officer and saying, "Here's what I have in mind. Is this doable? And if not, how do we get to yes?" Cindy, yeah, I'm sure DISA must get lobbed with with requests so um we do get quite a few requests and they come in a couple of different forms one as you mentioned is to interview the um, leaders and see where we're going in in an area perhaps a topical area and two is simply when the company or industry partner is going to create a case study and publish it Um, so for both of those i would say that a lot of it depends on how it's going to be used Uh, We have organizations that come to us and ask us to help support them do a white paper or a case study that they're then going to sell to their customers, and we do not allow that because that would be selective benefit. Um, There are other um, companies that come to us and simply want to publish it openly to everywhere. This is where we're going in this area, uh, topical area. Um, That we, again... um, as with our press releases and quotes, we review it. We look at the kind of information they're looking for. We determine whether they would be getting selective benefit by getting that information. We run it through our general counsel's office. And then if everybody uh, thinks it's going to be fair and open and published in a completely open forum, we could look at supporting that. Um, but it is, you know, depending on the kinds of information, a tough thing to do. Um, Another consideration I think that stops people from doing case studies is um, whether the company puts itself at little risk for business intelligence information getting out. You know, we've we've pursued this area. We're partnering with, you know, this federal organization to make great strides in this area. And then all of a sudden, 10 other companies want to do the same thing. So, you know, it's a challenge to figure out what the right way to do a case study is. And Cindy, is there a, a norm from the time that a government marketing person would reach out to your public affairs office to when a case study could be completed? Is it always different? Is it a four-week window, a six-week window? What type of a turnaround time can our listeners expect? Um, that would be completely dependent on what the product is and, and how uh, in-depth the study would be because it would take us some time to clear the wickets that we have to get through to get it approved. Um, but I would say, again, it's a, you know, understanding the public affairs office that you're working with. Um, you would also know, for example, if we're getting 50 of those requests a month, it's probably going to slow us down. If we're getting two, we might be able to run it through a little faster. Yeah. And Aaron, I'm, I would imagine PEOEIS also gets uh, quite a few requests uh, along, along these lines. So how, how do you look at, at, at these requests in general? You know, interestingly, I'm I'm more in line with Chris. Um, 
I don't tend to see the requests for case studies huh. that often. I think I, that's going to change after this show <laughs> today. I did, you know, I talked to um, our legal counsel, and they are fabulous. And, and I asked them before I came, you know, have you, have you all gotten a lot of requests for case studies? And they said, you know, not so many, but when they do come in, the way that they tend to come in is through the PM office up through our legal counsel. And, you know, in talking with them, I know, you know, they are looking at the same things Cindy discussed, you know, endorsement, things like that. So that's how we handle them. So um, let's talk about speakers and events. And uh, by events, we're talking about live events and webinars. Um, So, um, Cindy, I'll, I'll start with you. So. Uh, I know from when I was in the federal media, uh, DISA is is obviously a very popular place for the trade press. Um, how do you look at requests for speakers to appear at uh, conferences and then also for webinars? It's uh, a very good question. Um, first of all, we look to see that they're open to the public. That's one of the key things to us. We don't want that message to be um, limited to a specific audience. So, Uh, We get about 165 requests a year for DISA speakers to speak at events. The vast majority of those are here in the D.C. area, but we do entertain speaking engagements and support speaking engagements in our locations worldwide because we have a worldwide mission. Um, We always um, check to make sure that we have a speaker who is a subject matter expert for that topical area. Uh, We determine whether the audience is of the size and um, level uh, that would benefit from the information that we're being requested to provide. And we um, make sure that um, the general public will have access to the information in the long run. Um, We actually would like people that request us to provide a speaker to have media present for that event so it can be publicized to a wider audience. Um, So... um, We then take that information, we run it through our general counsel's office. If the public affairs office and the general counsel's office agree that it's a suitable speaking engagement, then we provide a speaker. Yeah. And is it ever okay for uh, companies if, let's say, they're putting on uh, their own conference, but it's open to the public and they've gotten approval, but uh, what about when companies offer to pay the T&E expenses for a government person to actually travel and uh, maybe their their hotel room? Uh, we don't encourage that. Um, there are cases, I think, when we have allowed it when it was an association or an organization, but not a industry partner. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of um, ethical issues and even just perception issues if a company provides funding that way. It, you know, if it's important for us to speak at this event, then we think it's important enough for us to pay. Aaron, um, I, I know PEOEIS is uh, on the speaker circuit a fair amount. How do, how do you look at these issues? Absolutely. I, I think Cindy and I um, are right in line with, with the open and the widest dissemination of the message is really important. Um, we love speaking events, um, especially for industry partner organizations like associations that have multiple companies who are members. Um, that's really helpful to get our to get what our, our our message is out, it really helps the speaking engagements for Army acquisition, especially PEOEIS. Um, we do IT acquisition, which is a little different than traditional weapon system acquisition. So, getting the vision out is really important. It helps us, you know, when we can talk to our industry partners. It helps us clarify the requirements. It helps us. Um, it helps our industry partners resource allocation. We talked about that a little bit earlier. It raises awareness of opportunities that increases competition, which we're really looking for. And it also gives us a chance to um, take a look at some like cutting edge market, you know, market technologies. So we love speaking, speaking opportunities. And again, it goes back to what we talked about at the game conference. Um, it's very, it's very helpful when it is uh, uh, an association with multiple members as opposed to um, one company, and we do take a look at that as well. That's great. You know, this is such awesome information, and and listeners, don't go away. We've got a really great third segment coming back um, to us in just a couple of minutes. So this is, uh, I'm your host, Luann Brossman, and this is Market Chat. 
brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. This is Luann Brossman, president and founder of Government Marketing University. To support next generation government marketers, we continue to expand our offerings to include more training, networking events, and professional development programs. Go to gmarku.com, that's gmarku.com, and subscribe to our e-newsletter and see a calendar of all of our upcoming GMarku activities. Government Marketing University, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. Welcome back to Market Chat by Government Marketing University on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. This is your host, Luann Brossman, and today we are hearing from federal public affairs experts on their best practices for promoting a healthier, more robust dialogue between government and industry. My co-host today is Steve Watkins, our GMARC-U Chief Content Officer. Steve, what are you covering in this next segment? Great. So what we haven't covered yet is the whole question about photos and videos and and other imagery um, that is offered in a number of different government uh, databases and libraries out there. And marketers do use those. Um, They, they use them on their websites or in blogs or what have you. So let's, uh, let's plow into that a little bit. So uh, on our prep call, it was insightful to learn uh, that there are a couple very large government photo libraries uh, just within DOD. One is the defense video imagery distribution system or DIVIDS. Uh, and another is the Defense Imagery Management Operations Center, or DIMOC. Um, so these are all considered public domain uh, databases with uh, government imagery. And by the way, all of our listeners, we have those links out on the Federal News Radio Market Chat landing page. Yes. So <clears throat> let's uh, start off, Nadine. Um, enlighten us, or our audience, as to kind of what they need to know when they're using some of these government images or videos, uh, particularly from these databases, or maybe not even from the databases. Sure, absolutely, Steve. Um, I will say that it is important to understand that in the DIMOC, there is a guide that discusses the limitations for public use. And that's going to be really helpful for marketers out there that are trying to use either the visual imagery database that they're able to collect from these two websites, the DIVIDs and DIMOC. I would never recommend anyone to go out and Google just, you know, uh, imageries of military personnel in this because those could be subject to copyright. So always start with the DIMOC or DIVIDs. In there, um, there are limitations on what can and can't be used for marketing purposes. Um, so when it contains military persons that are recognizable, for example, um, you know, you really want to be very careful and, and go back and, and ensure that that it's not someone that you're using their face, that they can be identified, as well as um, military um, places or visual information. So I would recommend to all the marketers out there that are listening to this to start, um, you know, do a quick Google search or through the link that you're going to be posting, read the guide. And if they have any questions, you know, to go ahead and contact the public affairs officer or the trademark and licensing office and ensure that that product that they're going to put out there is acceptable and has met all the requirements and criteria for public use. Yeah. And I I think that's great advice because I'm sure what probably happens in most of the times uh, is that marketers do use Google um, and they come up with an image that suits their purposes. And when you do it that way, you don't see any of the rules that uh, are connected to that photo. But in fact, there are many rules uh, in terms of how it's used and whether it can be used in some cases. Sure. You know, part of the, the misperception about public domain is that, well, it's public domain, I can use it any way I want, and that's not true. The other thing is there's caveats on, on attribution for the photo, uh, giving proper photo credit as to agency or to photographer. Uh, Public affairs specialists in the military in particular, um, that's a reputation that they're dealing with. They've made a name for themselves by being great photojournalists, and there's caveats in making sure they get credit for their work or do. The other thing by going to DIVIDs or Dynamock is you're getting good photojournalism. You can do a Google search and you can get a lot of crud out there, and it might meet your needs, but you're not getting an actual photo. You might be getting a graphic image. There might have been a lot of heavy editing done 
uh, when you go to Divids and Dimok, if it's not straight photojournalism, it'll say uh, image as opposed to photo. Uh, so you're getting the, the very best product that you can. Follow the guidance, as Nadine said, it's excellent. They really do try to make Dimok and Divids as automated as possible. We give you the guidance. You can go there, get the, in, the images, put them in your layout, and then, as Nadine said, go back to the public affairs office. Say, hey, I found this content on Dimok. I found it on Divids. I want to use it in this way. Does this work for y'all? Great. So <clears throat> let's um, let's go to uh, takeaway tips. So uh, I'd like uh, each of you, if you could, just take uh, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, and uh, give us one piece of advice that you would give to a marketer uh, about some of the topics that we've talked today, uh, talked about today. Nadine? I would let them know that we are here to answer any questions that they have, that they can always come to us, contact us um, for all requests. And it's always best to just make sure that whatever product that they're going to be marketing um, and that is using any type of military indicator, they contact the Trademark and Licensing Office to ensure that it does not have any um, anything that could be then pulled back, that we have to contact them to take it down. So after all of that work that they've done, um, it's always best just to come to us, check, and, and we're here. We're here for them. That's why our information is out there. Yeah, great. Chris? So I think it's really important for folks to know that a public affairs officer and a public affairs shop are the gateway to information. Uh, our association espouses the role of the career government communicator as that conduit to the information people seek, whether it's a contractor, whether it's the public. Come to your public affairs office, and from there you can get access to a speaker's bureau where you have subject matter experts. They're vetted. They're trained. They know how to, to engage audiences. You can go there and get the command philosophy, get okay on release of information, on imagery approval, and whatever routing might need to happen for your particular request, the public affairs officer and the public affairs office can do that routing for you. So they really are uh, the facilitator to information and government. We're not there to be a roadblock. We're there to help you uh, get what you need. And <clears throat> I'm sorry, while you're while you're talking... Um, you are representing the National Association of Government Communicators, and you have a uh, an event coming up. Can you tell us uh, just a few seconds about, about that group? Sure. National Association of Government Communicators is an organization uh, dedicated to advocating, recognizing, and promoting excellence in government communication at all levels of government, state, local, tribal, and federal. Uh, every year we have an annual communication school. Uh, this year it will be during the week of June 13th in St. Louis, uh, somewhere between uh, right around 200 or so government communicators will gather uh, to sharpen their saws on all of their skills. It's a great uh, networking opportunity, um, and you'll get uh, that great cross-section of communicators and government at all levels of government in one place for a week. It's a great learning opportunity. We're always looking for uh, exhibitors to come and, and, and uh, exhibit at our conference. Uh, we're always looking for guest speakers. Uh, if you have something uh, unique to share, uh, if you would like to sponsor the event, uh, please go to our website, NAGC.com. Uh, go ahead and click on Communication School, and you'll find all the information there in a perspective. Great, great. So all you marketers out there uh, looking to um, develop uh, good relationships with your public affairs offices, uh, that's a great place to start. Cindy? Well, I'd like to say that it does, uh, our interactions with and our support from industry partners is vital to accomplishing our mission. Um we value our relationship with our industry partners, and we understand that you know they all have a, a core of very highly motivated and talented marketing marketing folks who are trying to do their very best to promote their organization. But that's not our goal. So I hope that they'll understand that our goal is to accomplish our mission with the help of our industry partners in an ethical and fair manner that allows us to preserve the integrity of the procurement and acquisition process. And as long as we can work within that framework, that relationship with between the marketing folks and the public affairs office will always work. Yeah, great, good advice. And Erin? I wanna echo, um, I think we all are on the same page and, and um, you know, for the Army, readiness is the number one priority. There is no other number one. So everything that we do, gets to supporting um, the Army's readiness. So when it comes to endorsements and things like that, we're very, very careful, and we will not jeopardize our acquisition, um, our procurements, 
um, because that actually can jeopardize the Army's readiness posture. However, I say that um, because we do love to work with our industry partners. It's, it's a team sport. We cannot do it by ourselves. So, um, you know, working with your public affairs office, building a relationship with the public affairs office, I mean, if there are creative ways to work together, we love, love, love to explore those. Um, as long as they uh, fit within the joint ethics regulations, the Army Public Affairs program, um, if there are creative ways to work, uh, you know, together, we, we love to look at that. In addition, you know, just having that conversation, um, having open lines of communication is, is very helpful, I think, um, in understanding what's going on in the market and in um, industry partners understanding what's going on with us. And we all have phone numbers. We all have email addresses and um, happy to pick up the phone and talk. Those were some great uh, thoughts. Uh, I'd like to thank the panel very much. Uh, I think we came away with uh, a, a number of great insights and points. Uh, first being get to know your public affairs officer. So with that, I'll turn it back to Luann. Yeah, and and I'd like to also say, you know, thank you to our panelists. This was such an amazing session, and I'm really excited to invite you back to a future game if you'll all be willing to come, um, because I think that the message that they provided today, you know, I've been doing government marketing for a long time, and I'm busy taking notes, you know, and I think the biggest takeaway is get to know your friendly public affairs officer because they want to get to know you. So um, we'll be publishing our top 10 list as well from today on our Government Marketing University website. So we encourage everybody to go and download that. All right. So I am so excited to welcome today Elizabeth Shea. I've known Elizabeth for a long time. I won't say how long. And uh, she is the CEO of Speakerbox, which is a very well-known um, company here in the federal marketing space and a strategic alliance partner for Government Marketing University. So, Elizabeth, thank you for coming. Thank you, Luann. It's great to, great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk on uh, Federal News Radio. So um, to close up the session today, we, we wanted to invite Elizabeth in because she's coming from the industry. So one of the things that Market Chat does is we bring together government and industry to collaborate and talk about topics that are useful for government marketers. So Elizabeth, um, I know you came prepared today and we're so excited to hear about from your side of the fence on the industry side and supporting public relations. What are some tips that you would like to have our audience take away today? You know, and I appreciate the program so much today because it was good to hear from them as to from public affairs officers what really works and doesn't work. I think one of the things we really strive to do and encourage is to think about marketing to the mission. And I think that was echoed here today. You know, the agencies have a mission, they have initiatives, they have their own goals. And and to the extent that you can help to ex expand upon that, um, that's going to be very powerful for them. And I think you'll be able to find a lot more cooperation from that standpoint. So um, rather than touting the, your product and how great it is, how does that product actually enhance the mission and how um, <clears throat> is it solving a pain point that the government agencies experience? So I think the second thing that was echoed loud and clear today is just the fact that the PAOs are here to support and help the industry. And to the extent that you know who those are, those people are, um, sometimes you might get into the program management unit based on what kind of a solution your, your company is solving or, or providing. But, um, but get to know the PAO officer and just ask. You know, we, we always encourage um, the companies that we work with to, to make sure that you, you've, you just find out whether or not, and what are the rules of the game. Every agency is going to be different. It's different with DOD than it is for civilian, for intel, et cetera. And sometimes I think folks just don't, just don't try. And I think there are different ways that people can engage and, and really have it be a symbiotic relationship. So we say, you know, just ask and stick to the facts. You know, don't try to be too overly flowery or use a lot of buzzwords. Just stick, stick to the facts, Max, if you will. And then I think the last thing would be that if, if you really are providing a solution um, and not a product, I think you're going to find that the relationships that you develop um, internally will really help, really help your cause. So understand the organizations that... Um, that support the government agencies and and get out and get to know them. Pick up the phone. I mean, I think, like I said, they're. I think Aaron was the one who said they're they're available via email, phone, you know, digital media. There are ways to to reach some of those folks. So I think that's really important. You know, I I can't elaborate on that enough. I think that our listeners heard that today. That the public affairs officers are there and they want to talk to you. 
they are not evasive and all the information is out on the website they're they're giving us that information let's use it and let's reach out to them i think absolutely and another interesting um topic that was discussed today that elizabeth i'd like some insight from you on is it seems like a lot of marketers are not asking for case studies right i I, know isn't that interesting i think we need to bring back the day of case studies because i think there's an opportunity there what do you think about that um, I do. It's funny because most of uh, most of the companies that we, we run into will say, yeah, we'll never be able to get a case study out of the agency. And maybe it isn't a case study, but maybe they would be willing to talk to the media. Maybe they'd be willing to come on Federal News Radio. Maybe they'd be interested in, in standing up at a, at a speaking conference and talking about the problems that their agencies face. So there are lots of ways to engage the um, engage the agencies and the PAOs by just asking and finding out. And I think the case studies are really key um, because I think those are gold, particularly in any kind of a media um, opportunity. So that's that's something just to be able to showcase some of those successes is important. You know, it really is that simple. Ask. Just ask. Ask. I think <laughs> there's ask. a whole campaign around that. Just ask. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming in the studio today and being our thank guest so on much. Market Chat. Great. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. This has been just a great market chat. We look forward to uh, having you back to future market chats as well. And we also encourage you to go to Federal News Radio and look up Government Marketing University Market Chat. There are several of them out there now. This is our fourth one. Uh, Please listen to them. And we have a lot more coming in 2017. So to close today, again, thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you to our panel. We are so happy that everyone came in the studio today. And again, I'm Luann Brossman. You've been listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. Brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. This is Luann Brossman, president and founder of Government Marketing University. To support next generation government marketers, we continue to expand our offerings to include more training, networking events, and professional development programs. Go to gmarku.com, that's gmarku.com, and subscribe to our e-newsletter and see a calendar of all of our upcoming GMARQU activities. Government Marketing University, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing.